Hello, and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. Together, we try to make sense of what's going on by looking at the trends and the numbers behind them. Now, this week, we've got a treat for you because we're going to talk about whether Joe Biden, currently President of the United States, and Rishi Sunak, currently Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, could both face defeat in elections that could take place very close to each other next year. We certainly know that the US election is going to take place at the beginning of November. And we think that perhaps the UK election might also take place next autumn. So what was your date prediction again, John? November well, I, I, my, my current estimate is the advice is perhaps the 31st of October. That was it. Whereas, of course, the US is going to be on the 5th of November. So it could be very, very close to each other. Anyway, so what we're interested in a year out is whether or not President Biden and Prime Minister Sunak are facing similar difficulties and challenges or maybe opportunities so far as next year's election is concerned. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about the US and then we're going to talk a little bit about the UK and then we're going to try and draw the comparison between them. Anyway, to help us, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by somebody who knows something about what's going on in the United States, unlike Rachel or myself. We're joined by Chris Carman, who is the professor of politics at Glasgow University, who I've known for many years. Now, I can tell you that Chris is really, really reliable when it comes to making predictions about US elections. In particular, uh, for both 2020 and 2022, on the eve of the election, he gave one absolutely crucial piece of advice, which was, don't bother to stay up overnight because we will not know the result of the election until 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock or maybe even later the following morning. So I have to say I've always taken that advice and my sleep pattern has benefited as a result. So anyway, Chris, welcome to Trendy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we're a year out. Are you able to tell us who's going to win the next presidential election? No. (laughs) We can take some guesses. Uh, There's been a lot of polling and everybody's trying to figure this one out. Um, so we'll start the ca- we'll start the conversation with the caveat that uh, we are a year out, uh, and so there's always a big margin of error around the polls. That said, we can certainly look at where people are standing and what the trends uh, might possibly be looking forward. For what it's worth, what do the polls tell us now about what would happen if we had an election tomorrow? It's very tight. Joe Biden is looking at a very very tight race against the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump. Uh, one of the, there's a variety of interesting sort of ways of, of cracking this, but the bottom line really is, is that the polls are a, a bit tighter than we might expect, given the state that the economy is looking like it's not doing but too isn't, bad. But isn't, isn't President Biden actually a little bit behind President Trump um, in, on average in the, you know, for what it's worth, the, nas- the nationwide vote intention? On average. So across yeah, okay. across multiple polls, uh, he's somewhere between minus two to minus four uh, on the national polls. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the U.S. elections aren't national elections. They're uh, held state by state with the Electoral College. So- and in the key crucial swing states, he's upside down. Uh, he's struggling against Donald Trump. Okay, so we are contemplating at least the possibility that maybe 
President Biden will lose the election. We are definitely in much the same way as we're also contemplating, and we'll go on to discuss the possibility that maybe Mr. Sunak will lose next year. Right, also. it's right. not looking okay. good for Biden. How common is it for a president after the end of their first term to be this far behind a year out? Uh, so it's 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 not without precedent. Uh, so George W. Bush was upside down in the polls at a, a year out uh, from re-election. Obama was upside down in the polls, uh, but those were very different races. So the, the 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 sort of unprecedented, you know, whenever you think Trump is involved in anything, right? Unprecedented this, unprecedented that. So this one, particularly because in effect, what we have is two incumbents running against each other. Um, it doesn't happen very often that you have somebody who lost an election, sit out a cycle, and then come back, as Trump has done. So that makes sort of trying to figure out what's going on a bit trickier to unpack. So does it mean, does it mean that perhaps we might anticipate that the support for Trump is firmer than it would be for a Republican nominee or potential Republican nominee who has not previously stood for the presidency? So if we go back to my caveat saying, you know, year out, polls are not very predictive— this time around, we actually might think that the polls might tell us a little bit more than they ordinarily would, because normally a year out, we don't know who the challenging candidate is going to be. We're speculating on that. Uh, and so it makes it a bit more difficult. And that person usually is not as well known as the incumbent president. This time, we're fairly certain that the uh, nominee will be Trump for the Republican Party. Are we? Really? Fairly. Mm-hmm. Fair, I said fairly. You, you, think, you, you, you think he will manage to negotiate the various legal potential legal obstacles that might stand in his way? So his numbers have have held up pretty much consistently across. Yeah, but it's, it's, and, it's the judgment of the courts that's now crucial, not the judgments of the public, isn't it? Well, uh, it's the judgment of the public on the judgment of the courts. Yeah, does the judgment um, of the court actually stop him from running? No. No, that was my understanding. Okay. Nope. Uh, there's basically there's an age requirement in a in a nationalized citizen requirement. And that's about it. Yeah. So, you know, Trump could be in prison and still be elected president. Okay. Right. So would he have to stay in prison if he was elected? Yes. There's a whole bunch of things about what the Secret Service would do if he actually were ending up a night in prison and all this sort of thing. But anyway, so the the the, the polls are, are sort of in a sense, we might think that because the public knows who Trump is and they expect him to be the nominee, that the polls now maybe give us a little bit more information than we would normally expect them and to do. Chris, I'm radically oversimplifying, but normally hmm. you lose support either because there's a bunch of swing voters who are going from sort of Biden to Trump or because your core base has decided to not vote for you and possibly not for anyone. So what is driving Biden's problems? Is it people going from Biden to Trump or are they going from Biden to nobody or a another? There's not there's some switching to Trump. So uh, among certain demographic groups. So black voters under the age of 40, particularly uh, young black men, have switched to Trump. Not all, but, you know, something like 20 some odd percent. Right. So previously, um, whereas uh, non-white voters under the age of 45 in the last election went to Biden by 40 points. Now it's almost a dead heat between Biden and Trump uh, amongst that that age group. Um, and young voters, uh, 18 to 34, in 2020, they went to Biden by 21 percent. Now the latest polls are only showing him going to Biden by about 5 percent. So Biden is losing his 
core base. That's that seems to be the case. Um, and the but the, the, we get these sort of we're getting these slightly strange signals. So we just had what's called the odd year elections in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So you know Americans vote almost every year, right? Depending on what state you're in. Uh, and so you have the on-year elections, presidential year, odd-year elections. So the ones this year were just a couple of weeks ago, yeah? Just a couple of weeks right, ago. Yeah. And uh, the Democrats actually did pretty well. Uh, they did quite well in the Virginia state legislature. They did well in New Jersey state legislature. They did well in Ohio, where uh, abortion rights were enshrined in the state constitution. Uh, the the Democrats running uh, for re-election in Kentucky governor won. So. Uh, they didn't. The, the but, Democrats but, but, didn't but, sweep, but they did well. But maybe, but, but maybe this emphasises the point that you made to Rachel earlier, which is that the problem is Biden, right. rather than necessarily the Democratic Party, and perhaps also the advantage is Trump, rather than necessarily the Republican Party. That's right. And the thing, the, the funny thing here is, is that Biden has done fairly well as he's been a relatively successful president in terms of the legislation that he's gotten through. Um, but has a certain reputation for the odd. Spoken gaff. Yes. Well, he, people think and he he's always old and incompetent, don't they? I mean, that's broadly what the that's problem. That's basically the problem. Yeah. Um, so age is one of the biggest problems. So he has a problem amongst young voters, as we were just talking about. But then there's the perception of him being too old. So the the one of the the um, big polls that everybody's been talking about, and I've already sort of referenced, is this New York Times Siena poll uh, amongst uh, that they ran in six crucial swing states, uh, and in that poll. Uh, across these six states, somewhere between 60, almost 70 percent uh, of, of respondents all said that Biden was too old. Um, and if you look at young voters, that goes up to the high 70s, saying that Biden is too old to be president. OK, now there's one other crucial topic we need we need to address before we move on, because President Clinton reminded us that it's the economy, stupid. Right. So um is the economy not a problem for Biden? The economy is the problem for Biden. Um, yes, we can talk about his age. Yes, we can talk about these other things. But uh, most of the evidence that we have, particularly I talked about uh, black, young black voters um, and then just young voters in general. Why is it? What is the big issue that's really throwing them off is the state of the economy. And we have this, again, it's a strange mixed signal situation. So the interest rate is quite low, about 3%, 3.2% or so. Unemployment rate is quite low in the U.S. So many of the objective indicators look like the economy is doing fairly well. And the economy has grown enormously in the last decade. Yes, but so has housing prices. Um, housing prices are up substantially. And remember, too, the inflation rate still quite high. And wages have been kind of just about matching, but not really much more than that. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. so young people aren't getting on the housing ladder in the United Sounds States. Sounds familiar, yeah. Um, and they are, you know, many young people are still living with the parents after graduating from university, after having a professional and job. And these are the young people that Biden, Biden is, is losing. Upon. Is, right. okay. Yes. And so the economy is still really the big thing that's driving. But, and in many ways, it's a branding problem, right? So they, they, they thought very cleverly that they would call it Bidenomics, um, and so it turns out Bidenomics doesn't float very well as a, as a, uh, well, a branding may, thing for the economy. That, that's a bit like trustonomics, it seems to yes, me. Yes, exactly. Indeed. People should just drop the anomics thing off of their names um, okay. and not go with that. So I think we should move on to the UK in a second. But okay. I think there's an interesting thing here because there's been an assumption in the UK, which has many of the same challenges, right? It's got high inflation. Um, 
actually much lower growth in the US, but you still have young people who can't get on the housing ladder are seeing stagnant wages. And some of the narrative assumption here is that is about um, the conservative government not speaking to young people. You have in the US a democratic president who's historically or at the moment should be speaking to young people, but there's a punishment for being the incumbent in this period. Yes. So would you say we have in some ways a pretty identical trend in the US and the UK, which is that the incumbent over the period of COVID, relatively high inflation in the US growth here, not much growth, is sort of automatically getting punished? I would say it's something of an analogous trend. Um, the The issue in the US, and there, of course, there's, there's different particulars that we can pick out. So both places obviously affected by pandemic. I think both countries, there's this, still this feeling of instability and not quite clear what's going on. And particularly amongst the younger people who had to have you know school and university and virtually and all that, it was just painful. Painful. That's still there. You know, that hasn't gone away. Then on top of that, there were a variety of sort of campaign promises that were made we're going to um, to around university debt, of course, which is you know huge in the U.S. Uh, amongst young people who went to uh, university. Um, a subject we discussed here a few weeks back. <laughs> anyway, yes, they were they were going to uh, you know basically absolve that that debt. That didn't happen. Right. You know, Biden tried. Same story. Biden tried, but the courts threw it out. Um, and uh, you know, there's been a variety of attempts to try to speak to and help um, the younger generation. But that just hasn't materialized. So that's a then sort of snaps back against the incumbent president and the incumbent president has to carry the weight of that that problem. Okay. Okay. Let's let's thanks Chris. That's fantastic. Um Chris is going to stay with us because he knows a lot about British politics too. Um, but we should now talk about the UK. So let's start off well there's a couple of numbers. So we talked about Biden being a wee bit behind. <laughs> The Conservatives are currently 20 points behind Labour uh, on average in the opinion polls. It's around Labour 45, Conservative 25. And in particular, perhaps one real number to, uh, to, to focus in on, because we've talked about how in the US Biden's been losing his core vote. Well, the Conservative core vote in 2019 were those people who wanted to get Brexit done, 80% of whom voted for the Conservative Party back in 2019. Now, only 48% of those people who even now still want to be outside the European Union say they would vote for the Conservatives. So if we in the US have an incumbent in a wee bit of trouble, here we've got an incumbent government that seems to be in rather considerable trouble indeed. I mean, obviously... There are some pretty major differences between what's going on in the US and the UK. So first of all, this government has been in power for 13 years. Uh, Trump only gets, uh, sorry, Biden or Trump only get two terms. <laughs> Though I think Mr. Max. Sunak wants us to believe they've, we've, this current administration has only been in office for the last 12 months. But I think it is months. fair to say that he has um, comprehensively failed in that aim. Uh, the public would consider that they've been in power for and now Lord Cameron has 13 back. years. Yes. Cameron is back. Um and uh, what a UK administration and government can reasonably be held accountable for is 
broader and deeper in many ways than what a president can be held accountable for. And I suppose the, as you said, John, the Conservatives have lost their rather different kind of previous core vote, although that core vote too was slightly different from the core vote they used to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a huge debate in the UK about what is a natural Conservative core vote now. Is it Mm -hmm. the sort of somewhat wealthier people in the South? Uh, Is it the older, some assets, lower income people in uh, Brexit areas? Um, And they are also doing catastrophically badly with the young. I suppose a parallel, though, is they too are losing some people's switches, but they're losing quite a lot to um, people who just don't want to vote at Mm. all or don't know. Sure. But in truth, that is what always happens when a party is losing ground, particularly when a party is 20 points below. You're going to lose everywhere, aren't you? (laughs) No, but but, but, but the point is that in those circumstances, parties, uh, you discover that as well as people switching, and people have switched and people are switching from Conservative to Labour, uh, quite a lot of that party's previous supporters also say don't know. Now, it's true, number one, the, the those are more likely to go back than are those who said, I'm going to vote for somebody else. However, they are not guaranteed to go back. If the Conservatives are going to narrow uh, uh, the uh, lead, they need to be able to actually improve the public's perceptions of them, etc. And I'm kind of struck, given we've spoken to, 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 to Chris about, you know, two kind of but they are parallels, but they're also differences. Mm. So we talked a lot about the, the the younger folk. Now, of course, for Biden, younger people were a core vote. Mm-hmm. For the Conservatives, they were not. Never. They were not. They were not. Right? The Conservative Party was dependent on older voters. Um, now they are still dependent on older voters. Actually, the Conservatives are still more popular than Labour amongst the sixty-five pluses. But it's just that it's now down to forty-four percent, as opposed to the figures they had uh, in twenty nineteen. The second thing, of course, we're asking ourselves is the question of personality. Not that Mr. Sunak is particularly unpopular now, but one of the crucial reasons why, in the end, Conservative MPs elevated him into the office and got rid of Liz Truss is that he was markedly more popular, or at least less unpopular, than his party 12 months ago. And the hope was that his personal favourability and popularity would help to push the Conservatives up. And that's what happened in the past, however, right? <laughs> yeah, it sure. It happened with Cameron. It's, it's a relatively common story in the UK that leaders outstrip their parties and pull mm. And can help, up. sure. But in Mr Sunak's case, what's happened is that his numbers have got closer and closer to that of the Conservative Party. So he's not mm. been able personally to advance. And the truth is that 20-point lead is exactly what it was shortly after Mr Sunak first became Prime Minister. So we've had 12 months and no practice has been made. So there, there is an issue of the core vote. There's an issue with younger people. There is also a question mark about personality. So I suppose if we're going to sort of roughly summarise, in the US, it's still really quite uncertain, maybe mm. less uncertain than you'd normally expect because tr- almost anything Trump is going to do in the next year is priced in and is not going to surprise anybody and people know him. But it's tighter and it's not completely mm. clear what's going to happen. I think it would take someone quite brave to say that the UK is uncertain right now in terms of what is likely to happen in next year's election. I know you hate giving predictions, John, but come well, on. No, 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 by no. the scale, it's not that uncertain. Well, well, no, it's just that impelled by 
Chris is, well, I knew Chris was going to talk about <laughs> where a year are, how reliable yep. are the polls, etc. Yep. Now, of course, there's a fundamental difference in that the Americans always know when their election is going to be. Right. We always, you know, now that the Fixed Term Parliaments Act has come and gone, we still are back to playing the guessing game of when the election will actually happen. But what's uh, also an issue here, of course, is the economy. I mean, uh, we are still... I mean, you can, the government clearly this week are trying very hard. They're trying to talk the economy up. It's not so bad, guys. There are, you know, the, the, the bright lights around the corner. You can understand why, because if you look at Ipsos' economic optimism index, so every month Ipsos asks people, do you think the economy is going to get better or worse in the next 12 months? Right? So it's future-orientated. We are still, in terms of net perceptions, minus 34. So there are far more people who think the economy is going to do worse then it's going to do better. It's a bit better than it was last year, but it's not that much better. And indeed, across the whole of this parliament, we have been more pessimistic about the economy on this measure than we have been during any previous parliament. So we've been as we have been highly pessimistic for longer periods of time over the last four years. So you can see the problem that the government faces. And the truth is, that if you then start lo- looking at, you know, what even where do conservative voters stand? So uh, this is British election study. So um, asking people, you know, do you think the economy you know, here was con- it was about is the economy getting better or getting worse? So mm-hmm. this is back last spring. Um, more than twice as many conservative 2019 voters. So this is conservative 2019 voters were saying the economy was getting a lot worse than thought it was getting better. And sure, if you think the economy is getting better, 84% chance that you vote Conservative again. But if you think the economy is getting a lot worse, only a 40% chance. So, you know, people's evaluations of the economy are very clearly related to their willingness to vote for the Conservatives again. And it is therefore very difficult to see how the current government is going to narrow the lead in the polls, unless indeed they can begin to talk up the state of the economy. The trouble is that so far, at least, that's proven pretty difficult to do. And I think there's a, a, something that's where you get a similar sort of dynamic uh, with the U.S., right? So the, the strange thing in the U.S. is, mm-hmm. again, back to this mixed signal thing. People generally think the economy is, is quite poor in the U.S. So not surprisingly, uh, 96% of Republican uh, identifiers say that the economy is poor or only fair. Let's get this. Let's get this straight, Chris. It's ninety six percent. You know what? I think I'd even. Str- I think I might even struggle here to find ninety six percent of Labour supporters who think the economy is doing yeah. badly. So, actually, your, your your perceptions are even more partisan than they're, ours. They're they're highly driven by one's partisanship in the U.S. But 84% of independents think the economy is poor. So these are folk who are not allied to either. People who say that they're not aligned with the party. And 59% of Democrats say that the economy is poor or only fair. And the interesting thing is here, 55% of Tory voters think the government is handling the economy badly. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So so for it to be 50, almost 60% of Democrats saying the economy is, is poor is really saying, on the other hand, most of the sort of, again, the objective indicators, people are, are spending money in the U.S., um, whereas here, 
in the UK, people are behaving like there is a cost of living crisis, right? You know, they're feeling the pinch. Whereas in the US, because you have this bizarre situation where a lot of the economic indicators are actually not that bad, um, people are behaving in a way, they're spending money. Um, uh, Consumer confidence is actually going up, even though people are still saying the economy is really poor. So you get this sort of very bizarre mixed signal things where at least here we have someone of a consistent, it's just generally bad. Um, and and people are, are more consistent on that. So it might be a bit more predictable. But I think part of the other thing with, with what you were saying, John, the other th- thought that I had is talking about the polls and talking about how votes split and who's voting for whom and all that sort of stuff. But predicting the turn, and this goes, I think, to what Rachel was saying earlier who, you know, is it that people are switching or is it that they're just turning off? Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the thing I think that's going to harm particularly Biden in the U.S. Yeah. is there's just no enthusiasm for him. And so uh, you, you could, whereas Trump, you know, rallies his base and people get excited yeah. about him. Yeah. And Biden, it, there's just, it's just not there. Yeah, um, and that's what a that, turnout in U.S. elections. How much does it vary? Uh, it, it's not. It doesn't vary huge. Now it was quite it, quite good in the last in twenty twenty because of the pandemic. People, you know, they they made it much easier for people to vote. Surprise, surprise! If you make it easier for people to vote, more people vote. Yeah. Um, uh, and there was no fraud. Just to say, uh, so more people voting, no fraud. Uh, but um, you know, you were talking several percentage points uh, year on year with with last year being the, the sort of one of the high watermarks in a while. Um, but if the enthusiasm gap remains. And then I guess the question for you, John, is what is the enthusiasm gap in the UK? Well, I, 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 versus I, what I, it, I think the honest answer to that question is that there, there isn't much of an enthusiasm gap here. There's a lack of enthusiasm <laughs> for both Mr. Sunak and Sir Keir Starmer because um, what, the one thing we are currently lacking is a charismatic party leader for any of the principal uh, political parties. Although it must be said that whenever I've had uh, US public opinion experts come over to the UK and do focus groups, they always talk about UK despondency. And I think it's just because they're used to talking to Americans. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. On the News Meeting podcast, we try to make sense of what should be leading the news with three guests who each pitched the story they think matters most. And once a month, we record a live episode in our newsroom. The next one is on the 27th of March, and I'm going to be joined by the brilliant author and podcaster Elizabeth Day. To come to the event and tell us what you think should lead the news, go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. That is tortoisemedia.com forward slash book. So far, we've talked about the parallels between the US and UK and the differences. But we have talked as though the economy were the only issue that drives voting in either country. And one of the things that I'm keen that we come back to in future episodes, because we're going to talk a lot about the US election next year, is actually what makes people vote? What do they care about? And and how much is that different in those countries? So Chris, in the US, other than the economy, what is driving voting intention? So the New York Times, Siena poll, they did ask this sort of basic question, is it social issues? Uh, and I believe they listed uh, abortion, immigration and democracy. So what we think of as sort of cultural Cultural. Issues. And they listed economics. Uh, and sort of mid-50s, almost 60% said it's the economy. Uh, but then across these different swing states, it was plus 20% who said the social issues. But that's quite interesting in itself, because if you were doing that equivalent 
in the UK, you would always ask about public services. You'd ask about health and education exactly. and yeah, crime. Exactly. That's right. So the fact that those were not that was not one of the dimensions in the US poll is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Abortion, which has obviously been really quite quite prominent. And which is since, not a source of division here. Not a source of division yep. here. But uh, since the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, threw it all back to the states, this has now been a highly contentious issue. Which I'm sure Even, listeners know, but it's allowing the states to make a decision yep. on the legality of abortion. So in Ohio, they just had a, a vote uh, a few weeks back. And Ohio, a Republican state, a clearly Republican state, they voted to uh, enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution. So the Democrats have seen this as being a big issue for them. It does tend to motivate uh, women to get out to the polls. Women now, who are for abortion rights. Because one of the things that it's probably worth flagging is that in the UK, at least, generally women have been more conservative on abortion than men in, in polling. It's a different issue in the US. Yeah, but there's, very, yeah. there's, there's no... There's it's very, not I a mean, huge issue. 70% of conservative voters are in favour of the woman's right to choose and 80% of Labour. It's stopped being a, an issue at all. Yeah. Yeah. So in the... So, but, but but what this does say, and to sort of get to your point uh, originally, is that if there are 20-ish percent of people saying that they'll vote on these cultural issues, social issues, on an election where we're thinking that we're looking at a, a razor-thin majority, um, this can really matter, right? So it, it's whilst the economy is really important, that's not to say that these more social issues aren't going to matter. They will matter, and they can matter quite a lot. Uh, depending on which state it is that we're looking at and depending on what else is on the ballot because you can get to all sorts of silly games where different referenda are put on the ballot to try to bring voters to the polls or to turn them off um, and that has been played in California and in other states. But in terms of the really big issues other than the economy that tend to make a difference in the UK, so health, benefits, crime... So crime is crime has not, been an issue. You've, you've not you've not mentioned the one on which the government wishes. I'm going to, to come focus. out to immigration and votes in a bit. <laughs> right, okay. I will because that's culture. I would put that in the same bucket. I'm talking about yep. things that are yep. not that you haven't listed. Right. They don't matter. So if you looked if you looked at the uh, sort of people asked in, in ranking different issues, economy, um, immigration does come up as an issue that people are concerned about. Uh, you get greater than across all those six states that they surveyed in, you get greater than 50 percent, just a bit above uh, people saying that they support the idea of building a wall on the U.S. southern border, for instance. So immigration is an issue issue. there. Um, uh, abortion is an issue. Crime is a is an issue as well, uh, but because the you know the healthcare system is so different and everything like that, that's yeah. not usually one that that, that tries. And how much do guns matter? Because that's one of the things that we often uh, see as a huge difference between yeah. the US and the UK. It's a small percentage um, that that will vote. You know, there's a very small percentage of people who are who are truly single issue voters. That that that's the one thing that they vote on. There is. Going back even to the 80s, there's a small single digits percentage of people who say that is the one issue that will drive them to the polls. But as a suite of, of issues that Republicans can package together, you know, this is what got Hillary Clinton in, into trouble. The you know they're going to take away our guns issue. Uh, so that does that does matter it can become uh, a symbol. for some crucial it can become a symbol of- in states like Ohio, yeah. states like Georgia, states uh, like Virginia. So some of these key swing states, it can it can matter. 
And uh, so it's the last question. There's so we could talk about it so long, but. Again, in the UK, it would be pretty common for someone to be relatively right wing on some of these cultural issues you're talking about. So immigration would be an obvious one, illegal immigration. To be relatively on the left in terms of the role of the state in the economy or taxation, um, certainly in terms of provision of public services, and and to therefore kind of mix these views. Yes. In the US, is the same the case? Or actually, can you predict people's views across a whole raft of issues? There's one particular demographic group that tends to be socially conservative but more economically sort of left liberal, um, blacks. Um, and so that goes back to the, the sort of young black voters. Not entirely no, different Trump. here. No. Yes. There are yeah. just fewer of them here. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's as, as a crucial group that, that sort of can swing depending on the relative mix of the issues that are being emphasized or to work particularly salient at any one point in time, that's where it becomes a crucial, crucial issue. Very interesting. And I suppose it's worth, John, just making clear that here, the huge issue that hasn't come up at all is the NHS. Um, we've not talked about it, but the NHS is a crucial reason as to why the government is in trouble. Levels of satisfaction with the health service are at a record high, primarily because of the size of the waiting list, 7.7 million levels people. Levels of dissatisfaction. Are level, sorry, the level of dissatisfaction is a, is, is a record high. Around 7.7 million people are waiting for some kind of NHS procedure. And again, if you do the analysis of you know, the probability of a 2019 Conservative being willing to vote for the government again, it's only 34% amongst those people who think the NHS is now a lot worse and a lot of Conservatives are in that camp, whereas you know around two-thirds of those who take a more charitable view of the NHS are willing to, to vote for it. So the NHS and the state of the NHS is a crucial problem for the government. But of course, the cultural issue, the cultural issue on which the government wants to focus is immigration. No, it's right. not immigration. Uh, well, it's I, I, immigration. And it's particularly the boats, right. The, <laughs> they the pro- definitely don't want to talk about immigration. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but, the, but the interesting contrast there is that people's, the, 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 the perceptions of 2019 Conservative voters about illegal immigration, and also, by the way, about legal immigration, are largely unrelated to their probability of voting Conservative again. So lots of Conservative voters are unhappy about immigration, but it doesn't seem to be the issue that is pushing them away. And to that extent, at least, it's not clear to me that the government's attempt to focus on stopping the boats, even if they were to succeed, is necessarily going to be the vote winner that they are anticipating it might be. So uh, we've obviously covered a huge amount of ground today. I think the thing that I am keen to keep coming back to over the next year because it is unusual to have a US and a UK election yes. in the same year. When's the last time this happened? Oh, goodness. I don't 1964. 1964. Oh, right. Very good. We, we, yes. we like John's memory. Yes. We rely John, on this John a lot. is the best anorak to we, have yeah, around. I can remember both elections, <laughs> <It's amazing>. unfortunately. <laughs> um, but there is, I think, also a temptation in the UK because we are fascinated by America and we speak the same language to Aye. make assumptions about the parallels Aye. between them, which are not always correct. So, And we've sort of just brushed the surface of them today. Chris, this has been absolutely fascinating. I wish we could go on for much longer. If we can persuade you back, I would absolutely love to. Um, But we are going to keep returning to this subject. Uh, For now, that's it from Trendy This Week. I'm Rachel Wolfe. But before we go, do remember you can email us with any thoughts or questions. Trendy at tortoisemedia.com. I'm John Curtis. Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to hear more from Tortoise's award-winning newsroom, then I have a recommendation for you. 
For the last few months, my colleagues Basha Cummings and Gary Marshall have been working on our latest investigative series. Walter's War takes you into the worlds of national security, defence and artificial intelligence, all places where, it turns out, a good story will take you far. But it all starts in London, with a romance that upends a girl's life. Here's the trailer. Last year, I met a woman for a coffee, and she told me that she had a story. It starts in London over a decade ago. Charlie was a young graduate trying to find her feet in the world. A new city, new friends, new job. It was just really exciting. And soon she meets a dashing diplomat who's just back from Afghanistan. People like me reading intelligence reports. Pretty quickly, she falls in love. She's enamoured with the world that he lives in. And with his encouragement, she applies for a job in British intelligence. She's optimistic. The interview goes well. I was just sat at my desk and I looked down at my mobile phone and I got... But then she receives a text message. It didn't mention his name, but it was so obvious to me that that's who it was about. That turns her life and her relationship upside down. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. It was like the bottom fell out of everything. I was just so shocked. She discovers that the story he's told her about his life, well, it's not what it seems. What could the motivation possibly be? I still think that's how I feel a little bit today and it's probably why I'm here right now is because I just want to know why he's done this. Ten years later, a mystery is still hanging over Charlie. She's watched this man climb to the top of academia, the civil service and into the world of national security. And she's seen him set up a billion-dollar company claiming that it's going to build the technology to save us in a new era of warfare. Whenever someone describes me, it always sounds like someone I'd prefer to meet. But then people started asking questions about that company, too. What they do is figure out how you see the world. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you what you already believe. It matters who is in the room when decisions are being made that impact people's lives, particularly when you're talking about military and warfare. That's why I think this is not just a story of, you know, I had a bad ex-boyfriend. This is a much bigger story than that. The dashing diplomat had found himself in a world where someone with a good story can go far. What was the word that you used earlier, the name for people who... Walter. And what? tell me what that is. Walter Mitty, a man who makes up stories. Walter's War is an investigation into big tech and national security, hype and hucksterism. But where does the story end and the truth begin? If you like the sound of Walter's War, you can listen on the Tortoise Investigates feed wherever you get your podcasts. Tortoise. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, 
the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.